Hello, and welcome back to The Naked Pravda, Medusa's only English-language podcast. I'm Sasha Slobodov, a news editor at Medusa in English, and this week we have an episode about Georgia, where we'll be discussing its application to join the European Union, the ruling Georgian Dream Party, challenges for journalists working in the country, crackdown on protests, as well as the conflict in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. On November 8, 2023, the EU recommended that Georgia be granted candidate status, which it applied for in March 2022, just after Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. In June 2022, while the EU made the decision to grant Ukraine and Moldova candidate status, Georgia was only granted what was called an EU perspective, which recognized it as a potential candidate as long as it met specific priorities specified in its application. Rewinding a bit, Georgia first started to see closer integration with the EU after the creation of the European Neighborhood Policy in 2003, which aimed to bring the EU and its eastern and southern neighbors closer together. This was just around the time of the Rose Revolution in Georgia, which saw the United National Movement Party, also known as the UNM, come to power, which was led by Mikhail Saakashvili, who held pro-Western views and hoped for Georgia to join NATO and the EU. In 2013, the newly formed Georgian Dream Party came to power, which was founded by Bedzina Ivanishvili, a billionaire who made much of his business wealth in Russia during the 1990s. In recent years, the Georgian Dream Party has been criticized by the EU for its increasing restrictions on media freedom, ability to protest, and for developing closer relations with Moscow. Georgia has a complicated relationship with Russia. In 2008, The two countries went to war over Abkhazia and South Ossetia, Georgia's two breakaway regions. This was not the first conflict over Abkhazia and South Ossetia. In the early 1990s, just after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Georgian Civil War broke out, which saw intense fighting between Tbilisi and the regions of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. But the conflict in 2008 saw Russia's direct military involvement and resulted in Moscow occupying both breakaway regions. As a result of the war, Georgia severed diplomatic relations with Russia, and to this day, 15 years later, they maintain no formal diplomatic relations. While the conflict is often described as frozen, since there was no formal peace treaty that was signed, people living along the so-called separation line between the breakaway regions and Georgia proper continue to experience the ongoing effects of the war. This is visible through Russia continuously building and reinforcing fences along the line of separation. Occasionally, Russia moves this line, fragmenting local communities. At times, this even turns deadly. Just recently, in early November 2023, a Georgian man was killed by the Russian military when he was visiting a church located on the separation line. Here to talk to me about the conflict is Alyssa Vartanyan, Crisis Group's senior analyst for the South Caucasus region, who has spoken to people living near the separation line about how it continues to impact their lives. So the line that separates uh, the breakaway regions from the rest of Georgia, it emerged after the 2008 war. We got uh, Russia that recognized the independence of these two statelets, Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And after that, with de facto four years there, they signed a special agreement and we got Russian border guards that started patrolling 
the areas. And uh, at the same time, we started seeing them building what they call a border or the line. There are like different names to that line. Some call it like boundary, some administrative boundary line, occupation line, and many others. And in the very beginning, it was really very ugly. Around 10 years ago, we started seeing the Russian border guards installing barbed wires in different places. And these were like very populated areas, residential areas. So a person would wake up and see, literally see a barbed wire in the middle of his or her yard. And by doing that, of course, the Russian border guards, they were trying to do their job. They were there to prevent unauthorized movement from South Ossetia or Abkhazia to the rest of Georgia. But it right away started affecting the people. And not only kind of visually, but physically as well. Many more people started getting detained. And then in the beginning, it was were like brief uh, detentions. But uh, the longer it went, uh, the more we saw fines. And uh, if you get arrested for the first time, it's a smaller fine. If it was your third or fourth time, you can, in fact, end up with a prison term. And there are some people who actually had to go through this. Again, in some of these areas where the, the line goes uh, through the villages. But on top of that, of course, these were the stories of the people who had their farming lands in front of them and they had no chance to accept them. And that uh, made a huge difference to many people who live along the line because for many of them, this is the only income that they have. But the still you got cows, pigs and many others who did not really follow the line and uh, this continues to be a problem because they tend to cross and uh, then there are the people who try to bring them back. Sometimes they have the contacts on the other side who help them and sometimes not. So there are the people who actually get detained because of that. And there are also cemeteries uh, that are located right next to the line and if you want to pay respect to one of your family members, you basically risk your own freedom in many cases. So these are really kind of, you know, the things that in the very beginning did not really look very serious, I, I will be honest with you. But mm. uh, with uh, years passing and also with geopolitics changing, this whole story with the line became a major issue. And then uh, that affects the people, in many cases destroys their life, but also generates with constant incidents that distort with relative stability uh, that otherwise exists in Georgia and in with areas where uh, with breakaway regions uh, get connected for the line. And of course, with the uh, line, while getting more and more fortified, and if you ask me, there is no way to stop fortifying mm -hmm. it or like with process that some call borderization is just continuous and, and you can see that where it was just a barbed wire now we have fences and next to these fences there are like special installations and then cameras and then sound detectors and in addition to that there are some special machines to distort signal you know mobile or television so i mean it just becomes more like uh, what one probably sees in Berlin, uh, you know, what was there that separated uh, one part of the city from the another. And of course, this creates again the problems for those who live there, but also for, in general, for the situation in the conflict zone and it distorts the potential for any kind of proper reconciliation. And has polarization that process, um, has it become more intense or developed more at certain moments? Did Russia's invasion of Ukraine, either in 2014 or in 2022, did that impact the 
the focus. Some people were thinking that with Russia so focused on Ukraine, it would be thinking less about South Ossetia and Abkhazia. You know, it might be thinking less about Abkhazia and South Ossetia, but in terms of like how it translates on the ground, is with whole situation with Ukraine, it's a bit different sentiment there and interest that Russia has. Russia's main interest uh, since it started this invasion is to avoid any kind of other confrontations and conflicts that can destroy its own resources. And it's starting like with not just with the military resources that they have to spend in Ukraine, but also the diplomatic resources. So they, in fact, uh, what they have been doing for more than a year and a half is they were doing everything possible to avoid major incidents that can spark bigger confrontation with Georgia. Borderization continues. And as I told you, I don't see how you can even stop it mm-hmm. because the goal that they have is a mission impossible. They want to establish the border in very densely inhabited places where people tend to go back and forth, where cows go back and forth. The only way you can do that is if you continue building up all the time, adding different things to the fences, then you add trenches, then you add more barbed wires, then you add cameras, sound detectors, lights, everything, you know. The things continue, but it's clear that uh, they have been trying to avoid major scandals, major problems. And we, for example, during this year and a half at least, we haven't seen Russians doing the things that they did before. For example, when they would uh, approach one of these Georgian villages that is located right on the line, telling the people that, hey guys, you got a week, you have to vacate like with several houses that are either on our side, according to our maps, or are too close to our line. In the past, we had situations like this, and that sparked enormous tensions. Yeah, I mean, people would protest, they would say that you continue evicting our people, mm-hmm. right? It's a continuation of ethnic leasing and all of that. So we haven't seen anything like this for quite some time. But that doesn't really resolve the problem on its own, right? The line still exists. There are people still continue getting detained. And despite this whole kind of, I would say, approach that they have in Moscow, and that finds a reflection on the ground when people get detained, but they also tend to release them very often, you know, like uh, easily, not like with the same amount of problems and troubles as before. But just recently, there was this incident with one of his locals near the village called Kirbali. It's mm-hmm. right next to the line. I visited it as well a number of times. And there is a, a church right next to the line. And it's a very important church for the villagers. It's like village church. And... There have been problems in the past as well when people tried to access the church and either got detained or there was a need for like additional conversations to make Russian bodyguards agree to have its people who visit the church. There were the reports that during the summer, the Russians basically closed the door, <laughs> even glued it somehow wow. so that people do not come. But uh, with two men from Kirbali, just I have no idea why, but they decided to go there. And what happened is that the Russian bodyguards saw it. They made attempts to warn them at least this is what they say. And with two Georgian men who were quite, I would say, angry at everything that they saw, they tried to break the door, you know, into the church. I think they did it. So they didn't follow the orders coming from the Russian bodyguards. And what happened in the end is that the Russian bodyguards started shooting at their car. And one of these guys got killed. It's definitely not the first time, and I'm afraid not the last time, when we hear that someone suffers, again, from this whole thing 
with the borderization. But this was like the first time in quite some, in many years, I would say, when we had the situation, especially with the Russian border guard opening the fire and killing civilian Georgian. Again, something that could be easily resolved, easily prevented, if only we there were some more kind of rules or some more clarity and definitely no line. So you mentioned that Russia continues to move the separation line as part of this process of borderization. Does Moscow have any sort of stated goal about exactly where or how much further it wants to move this line? This is definitely the Moklos word uh, mm-hmm. over Georgia. And when you speak to the Georgian government, current leadership or the position, I think everyone realizes that this whole thing with the borderization, at some point it may become not just a problem for the villagers who lose their farming land or get detained and things like that. It can become the problem for the whole country. And one of them is, of course, the fact that this line in some areas is really very close to the highway, for example. Or in some places it crosses the gas pipeline that delivers gas to Europe from Azerbaijan. So there are many more places like this. If if one wants to destabilize a Georgia, it's very easy to do. Again, using with pretext of the line. And again, this is something that everyone in Georgia understand. I mean, those who are in politics, either they are sitting in the offices or they have an aspiration to become part of the government, potentially, if there is a change in the political regime there. It's very easy to do. Like, for example, at some point they find a map that uh, shows that uh, half of the village should be inside South Ossetia. And they just start coming with their guns and telling the people that it's time for you to leave. It will provoke enormous anxiety and tensions. And especially in a situation when in Georgia you constantly have this polarization between mm-hmm. the political forces and also with instability in terms of uh, constant blame game that is going on uh, between the politics. Some call it hybrid war that Russia is conducting against Georgia. I would say that this is definitely a very important card that one could use if, for example, they don't like something that is happening inside Georgia. And again, they can find another map that shows another line. And yeah, there will be very little that Georgia will be able to do. Given the current geopolitical circumstances and the current Georgian administration and polarization, as you said, how much do you think there's a risk of an escalation or, on the contrary, a prospect of resolving the conflict? It's a very good question, and I'm afraid there is no easy answer to that. It's definitely a very different conflict from the one that uh, we had before the 2008 war, before Russia recognized independence of Abkhazia, South Ossetia, and uh, stationed its military forces there. So in many ways, the keys are still in Moscow. It very much would depend on Russia's foreign policy, geopolitics in the region, maybe even how the situation will go on in Ukraine. Of course, there are the things that Georgia can do on its own. And if you ask me, they have been doing many cases their best. For example, in opposite to many of the policies that they had during the 90s and even before the 2008 war, they started asking all these international organizations to go and work in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. They would open uh, with boundary lines, the checkpoints, inviting Abkhaz and South Ossetians to come to study, also to get a free health care. Is there anything more that Georgia can do for sure? And people like me are constantly calling, you know, the Georgian authorities, telling them that, look, guys, you need to give uh, a chance to people who live inside the breakaways to develop, to feel that they are humans, right? I mean, 
Of course, they have a security protection coming from Russia, and they fully now depend on Russia and Russian budgetary support. But at least in some of these places, there is this aspiration that they are on their own, and they want to have their own hospital, not necessarily going to Georgia, <laughs> you know, to get some elementary even tasks that they need. Or, for example, in terms of the education, I think it's very much in the interest, also longer-term interest of Georgia, to have well-educated Abkhaz and South Ossetians with who they potentially could negotiate and live together. So, I mean, there are the things where you can argue and you can see some traction going on with the Georgian authorities. The Ukraine war did not make things easy, mainly because now so many are afraid to see what Russia can do more. There is a lot of conversation, many conversations about uh, potentially uh, at least Abkhazia becoming part of this so-called new USSR (laughs) together with Belarus and Russia. If this were to happen, of course, on the ground, there, there would be some reflections, but it's definitely not contributing to potential resolution and then reconciliation, because one thing is a political decision, but the other, you cannot really change the geography. You will still have eventually to live together, right? I mean, this, this thing stands in the air. When you speak to the Georgian authorities, the current ones, I think they realize uh, the complexity of the issue. Their main problem, I would say, is that they don't really have a lot of political will to invest into kind of relations with people of Abkhazia, South Syria, de facto authorities, always to entities. They don't really see why they should be doing that, because they know that people who are in different, in opposite political camps will certainly criticize them, saying that you're like a plane towards Russia by, and you're like, in a way, it's a creeping recognition with entities and all of that. So the guys are watching, and from time to time, they're doing the things. We see them making attempts to keep contacts with Moscow as well, and then to negotiate when there is a major scandal. Uh, But in terms of prevention, in terms of doing the things for future, you don't really see them doing much. When it comes to the opposition, well, this is one thing when you're a politician and the other when you become an official. But while these people are in politics, they tend to take a more radical stance. And while recognizing Abkhazians and South Ossetians and their citizens, they still tend to speak more about Russia and the potential of pressurizing Russia so that it starts to concede the things to Georgia and then by through this to find the ways to resolve the conflict. Again, the way I started, I will have to end the same way. Uh, it's a very complex issue. You mm-hmm. cannot do it only one way or another. It's several instruments that will have to come together. And uh, there are some people who are saying that, yes, Ukraine war is a bad time. There are also those who are saying that the Ukraine war is a good time in a way to reach out to also provide guarantees to those who are on the other side, telling them that, hey guys, it's definitely not uh, us. It it will not be uh, the way it was in the 90s when we started fighting each other. We learned our lessons and we, we will definitely not attack you. But let's start thinking about the ways how to live together. I don't think that the people on the other side will not be necessarily ready for that. But at least there will be kind of, you know, with conscious thinking that Georgia is not there to attack them. And I think this is a very important and major step that you can see some officials, in fact, like, uh, you know, speaking about this here and there. But I would say that there is constant need to remind and also to reconfirm it in order to proceed with the next steps in relations. And how much engagement would you say there is on a person-to-person level? So how much do people living in Georgia proper interact with people living in Abkhazia and South Ossetia? 
You know, it's really very interesting that with relative stability that we have been uh, having like for over 15 years now since the 2008 war, it in fact contributes to building this kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. So you can see more and more people traveling back and forth, people coming from Abkhazia in the beginning just for hospitals, something like uh, urgent that they needed. But now I can see more and more people coming in for shopping. And the same with Sawasidia. With Sawasidia, it's a bit longer and also more restrictive, but you still have people who travel, who visit their their relatives and who go back and forth. It's very important to sustain this uh, whole kind of environment when people can go back and forth. And because in a way it contributes to rebuilding connections and with estrangement that could otherwise happen between ethnic Georgians and ethnic Abkhaz or ethnic Sawasidians, it would make things so much more difficult and contribute to with mistrust that would definitely not help in any kind of, you know, no matter what plan anyone were to prepare or to propose to the other side. But in addition to that, compared to some other conflict zones, we also have people who are in the middle, who, for example, are ethnic Georgians who live in Abkhazia or ethnic uh, Georgians who live in South Ossetia. These are the people who are not really local, but local. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then with people, they are like natural connection, I would say, between the societies. They, in many cases, have the biggest number of problems, the best humor, <laughs> in my view, because they have to joke and about their life. Otherwise, uh, sometimes you will just go crazy. They also are the ones who have many documents <laughs> because mm-hmm. you have to survive. And then also, these are the people who tend to speak to everyone. Yeah, because again, they, they need to continue living. It would be interesting to hear your thoughts about how moving forward with Georgia planning to work towards candidate status, how that would interact with the conflict in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. You know, when it comes to the EU stance on Abkhazia and South Ossetia, it hasn't been changing since the 2008 war. So EU recognizes with two regions as part of Georgia, they condemn Russian occupation, and they would want to see territorial integrity restored in the Georgian case. That is not part of any kind of negotiations between Belize and Brussels on the stat- uh, candidate status or any kind of integration processes. You will see that in, in all the list, to-do lists that Georgia has been receiving, since it started with journey towards Brussels, there was one article there, <laughs> one line, you know, related to the conflict, but uh, it, it's definitely not something that is touching with fundamental okay. policy approach that has been around uh, um, from the EU. On top of that, the European Union has been contributing with its efforts to negotiate between the conflict parties. So there are you got the Europeans who are co-chairing the Geneva talks, and also the EU has its monitoring mission that is present in Georgia, and they are doing the job along the line. They are mainly they are working on with Georgia proper uh, only, but they are also the ones who are facilitating the contacts that are so important. Like for example, especially when incidents happen and there is a need to exchange the information, mm-hmm. it contributes a lot to its pacification, like to pacify any kind of tensions that would rise otherwise. So in a way, you know, uh, the approach has been, yes, with regions are there, they are mainly controlled by Russia, but they eventually should come back to Georgia. Well, you know, when you travel between Abkhazia and the rest of Georgia, I can tell you that it's like a travel in time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Yeah, in Georgia profile with this one, one life, and when you enter Abkhazia, it's absolutely different life. Sometimes uh, you can feel, I can feel definitely closer when I travel between Belize and Vienna than Belize and Sukhumi. So it's already quite a huge difference between these two places. And in a way, of course, maybe at some point, Georgia, if becomes more democratic, open, transparent, uh, also kind of respecting the rights of the minorities, it would eventually become more attractive. But the conflict has been so far there. And on the one hand, with grievances related to the past tensions, people got killed, still have terrible life, they still suffer from all of that. And I'm not talking all about the 2008 war, but also what happened in the 90s. But also on top of that, of course, the Russian presence and Russia's attitude to all the movements that are happening by the European Union. And we saw what Russia was ready to do in Ukraine. Hopefully, <laughs> there would be no repetition of 2008 war for Georgia, but it's, it's also something that one has to consider. One of the most recent instances of the Georgian government suppressing media and protests was the Foreign Agents Draft Bill. It was proposed in March 2023 and was largely modeled on a Russian bill that requires any nonprofit organization or media outlet that receives at least 20% of their funding from abroad to register as a foreign agent and be monitored by the Justice Ministry. Failing to comply with the law is punishable by large fines or imprisonment. Here to speak to me about these developments, as well as challenges that journalists face in Georgia, is Mariam Nikoradze, the co-founder and executive director of Open Caucuses Media, who has spent the past 14 years working as a journalist in Tbilisi, Georgia's capital. As you mentioned, I worked as a journalist for 14 years, and this covered different governments, including UNM government, and under Georgian Dream, several different consistencies of the government. And it never was, like, extremely democratic, because there were always problems. But the thing is, the situation started to rapidly deteriorate, especially after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I mean, for media, we had, of course, we had 5th of July in 2021, when more than 50 journalists were injured in one day, one died. And there was this hate campaign already quite active against media uh, from the government and from the government supporters. But when after the invasion, uh, it was just Something changed in one day because if before the war, uh, Georgian Dream tried to look as a pro-Western government, at least uh, from the side, in the official statements, on paper and so on. After that, there's everything changed and they things like attacking uh, ambassadors, for example, personally. So this was something unheard of. We've never had such cases before, but making very anti-Western statements. Nowadays, we are at a place where government is trying to demonize uh, entire Western community, but also the donors who invest quite a lot of money, not just like funding uh, non-government sector and media, but like they fund government projects as well and so on. But they are portrayed very in a very negative way. And then there are this whole range of reforms that government uh, attempted to do or already conducted. And one of them was, of course, everyone remembers this foreign agents draft law that they wanted to adopt, which failed because of a large protest. But the thing is, like my observation is that the government is actually using this law in practice because uh, it's already 
they call uh, certain individuals or such organizations as agents. There are some investigations against people who are attended a training funded by uh, USAID and other donors. So many things change. And when, first, we, we can talk about media. In terms of media, there are like uh, security concerns, but at the same time, there are concerns in terms of legislative amendments because quite recently, Georgian Dream adopted this new uh, law, which was supposed to regulate hate speech and the calling for terrorism in media. And it was indeed a requirement from the EU to put the legislation in line with the EU legislation. But what happened was the Georgian Dream unexpectedly introduced new draft of this law on the second hearing, because on the first hearing, it was a different version, where they introduced this new term, obscenity, and basically they banned broadcasting obscenity. And it's a very, uh, like this term is quite vague and it can be very widely interpreted and you know election is coming in a year and everybody is scared especially in media that this will be used as a punishment tool against the opposition and critical media and we are scared that other kinds of laws will be introduced probably in the following year uh, which could affect uh, media as well as uh, civil society and as for activism it's quite difficult to organize protests nowadays because uh, especially after March protests but even before that uh, government was already taking quite a few steps to pressure activists as much as possible they've increased fines for the two articles which are usually used against the protesters detained at the protest which is petty hooliganism and disobedience to the police and now you can be fined with up to 4,000 lari for such um, charges uh, with this uh, loss and this is a huge amount and basically where we are nowadays is that if you get arrested at the protest and usually it's very common and if you have bulletproof uh, evidence that you are innocent and I've been to such hearings the people had all the evidence that they were innocent they are always found guilty and uh, fined uh, the worst case was on 2nd of June when people were arrested for holding some banners or a blank pizza of paper and they got fined from 500 to 2,000 lari. And I've heard from some activists already, I hear them saying that it's quite risky to organize protests because, of course, a lot of people don't have uh, enough money to pay these huge fines and then uh, these organizations tr try to help them to fundraise and it's hard because people are still trying to collect money for the March protests. And since March protests, we had so many protests already, so many people arrested and there are tens of thousands of lari accumulated for fines. And if you don't pay fines, then they freeze your assets and accounts and everything, and you're not able to do anything. So it's quite bad. And right now we are expecting, so like the parliament adopted this amendment, which practically bans setting up tents or different constructions, like maybe stage, speakers, things like this during protests. It was vetoed by the president. It was adopted by the parliament, but president use her right to veto. It was not overridden yet, uh, so we don't know if they're going to do it or not. Hopefully they won't, but I don't know.
If this is adopted, it will be terrible. It's already used. This law is uh, practically already used by the police because just four or five days ago, we have uh, this movement, um, this Rioni Valley movement who are in Tbilisi. They are protesting, I would say, no certain topic, which is about forests that has been handed to the businessmen affiliated with Russia. And they tried to set up a tent outside the environment ministry and 11 people were detained. And they they were not allowed to set up a tent, obviously. They were not allowed to even, no, stay overnight is uh, quite difficult. It's already cold. And yeah, they are trying to limit protests in all possible ways. You mentioned this law that would ban obscenities. So how does this law actually define obscenities? I don't even remember how they explain it, but like the way they explain it in the this description note of the law, it, it uh, my understanding is that they can basically label anything as an obscenity. I mean, we uh, without this law, I remember cases when, for example, the government officials gave a briefing and then some opposition or critical or independent journalists asked them questions which are critical without any tone, without any pre-intentions, and they've been called, no, like they've been accused of obscenity. Or just they've been insulted. So this will be just giving them a legislative framework for, for what they already do. So yeah, Georgian Dream is trying to use all possible measures to suppress free media, suppress activism. And it's not, we are, what, it's November and elections is will be next year, probably at the end of October. So I only, I have unfortunately not optimistic thoughts about at least following year what's going to happen so basically georgian dream kind of it it says that it's interested in um on papers interested in, in georgia joining the eu yet the government gives a lot of actions that appear to kind of completely contrast that i guess what would you say is the current government's outlook on european integration what while at the same time like how does that fit with um its decision to repress media freedom and freedom of protest in Georgia? Well, it doesn't make sense. I never have one clear answer why Georgian Dream is acting the way they are acting. Of course, there are some political forces or some, I, I don't know, some people who will directly say that, okay, they are fulfilling orders from Putin or something like this. I don't think that's entirely true, but I think probably they are trying to favor Russia for whatever reasons. For example, very recently, President Zurabishvili gave interview to Lemond, I think it was, and she said that Bidzina Ivanishvili, uh, the oligarch who co-founded Georgian Dream, he is type of a person who cannot believe that Russia may lose war. And of course, like a lot of people are convinced uh, that uh, George, uh, that uh, Bidzina Ivanishvili is still making the major decisions and they, he still has a say in this government. And then probably the direction Georgian Dream took in terms of foreign policy especially is a reflection of this. I don't know. It could be also that in the beginning they were also scared that there would actually be war here as well. And basically their politics and their policy and their message box is currently based on this sentence uh, that somebody, whether it's West or Ukraine or sometimes even journalists are blamed in this, that we want to open second front in Georgia. This has been going on for the past year and a half. And uh, yeah, so like all their actions uh, since the invasion was very pro-Russian. But uh, in the past two 
months, maybe a month. It already, there were some rumors. It became clear that Georgia was going to get a recommendation for the candidate status. And we kind of heard the statements change a little bit from the government officials that, okay, we deserve this. But before that would happen, there were also statements from quite high-ranking officials saying that, oh, if they don't give us status, it's fine. They can leave it for themselves. And uh, so this changed. I think what they will try now is to play safe um, between the EU and uh, Russia. But in general, I think this like pro-Russian policy will continue till the election. Then we'll see what's going to happen. But I think, yeah, we'll see just more pressure. By the way, very recently, Tbilisi City Hall announced that they will be reconstructing Rusaveli Street for the next two years. And Rusaveli is the main place for protests, as you know, and probably it's also aimed at possible protests that they may take place, especially during and after the election results are now. A lot of protests were also held outside the government office, uh, which is near parliament, but uh, still it's a different street. And some protests take place outside the parliament, and some protests are organized directly outside the government office. And this was happening quite frequently in the beginning of this year. And then they closed the space, and they said that they are organizing a recreational zone. It closed in April, and up until now, it's still closed. And the progress done and in this area is nothing. Not even the concrete is done. Of course, it's a way to <laughs> limit yeah, protests. And you mentioned the foreign agent law that the government tried to adopt. Why do you think the government tried to adopt? Like, Do you think there's a reason why they tried to adopt it at that particular time? Last year, when we were expecting the candidate status first, like it was in summer, right? Back then, there were a series of events also. Like, for example, arrest of the head of the biggest opposition TV channel, Desnik Aguaramia, happened just a week ahead when we were expecting for the first answer on the EU candidate status. And so it was considered as a sabotage. And the same with this one, with the foreign agents draft law, it seemed as a continuation of this like rapid change in the foreign policy. Uh, it's not foreign agents draft law. It's not something just Georgia uh, is mm-hmm. doing or was doing because same thing is happening now in Kyrgyzstan as far as I know. This is most the recent one. And we've heard it in the other countries where Russian soft power is still present, right? I think it was just uh, the part of this Georgian dreams changed course. And I think they did not expect this and we were quite scared that they would actually adopt it. And and a lot of organizations, especially media outlets, who would be targeted by this law. We were already discussing some kind of action plan or backup plan, what we'd do if they would adopt it, because it would practically mean some organizations shutting down even. So the, after the protest, the bill was dropped. Do you think there's concern that the government could revisit adopting such a bill in the future? There hasn't been any mentions of that. Okay. I don't think it's going to happen at least in the following year before the election. I don't know if they win, Mm -hmm. they may go back to it. But there are other draft laws that may come up once again. Because this year in, was it May and then later in June, they were talking about adopting the so-called anti-LGBT law. Usually Mm -hmm. this topic activates in May or July during the Pride Week or International Day Against Homophobia and Transphobia. This could be something that they may use because currently I think what Georgian Dream is also counting on is this very conservative, very 
religious group of people who potentially can still vote for them. And they are like positioning themselves as such very, you know, conservative with these traditional values uh, where family is a union of men and women. This is something that they do. So we may see this draft law and this draft law is also censoring media too because uh, they will be banning media from promoting queer rights, basically. And then another thing that may come up is the people who wrote this foreign ages draft law, when they wrote it, they said it was in at the end of the 2021, I think, uh, to they said that they were also working on the law, which is known as so-called defamation draft law. It's also been discussed in the other countries as well, which uh, on like it is advertised that it uh, will fight with disinformation and defamation, <laughs> but in reality it will it uh, will be a censorship law. Uh, so far, like in the recent months, there has been no mention of these two two laws. But I think there is possibility that we may see these laws coming back. Unlike, I don't think uh, foreign agents' draft law is coming back anytime soon or ever. But uh, yeah, there may be some laws, maybe even worse than that. I don't know. But you mentioned the upcoming elections. I was wondering what you see the prospects of media freedom changing with the different party in power. <laughs> it really depends what happens in the election. If Georgian Dream wins, I think we'll just see the situation deteriorate. Who could alternatively win? To be honest, I don't think there is anyone getting more votes than Georgian Dream as in the situation as it is now. With, the, with having all these parties that we know of today, they are not popular. The biggest opposition party is still, I think, I guess it's still UNM, Saakashvili's party, which is not popular. So their rating is not that high. Maybe they will get maximum 20%. I don't know. But then it means that pr- probably, so if Georgian Dream doesn't get majority, then we will have to have this coalition government. And then, <laughs> then I don't know what's going to happen. There will be a lot of fights in the parliament, I guess. But uh, for <laughs> things like media freedom and human rights, I think still it's a better pro- prospect than seeing Georgian Dream win again. I don't know, unless some new party or new political forces uh, coming, uh, I don't see anyone popular at the moment. The opposition is unfortunately quite weak. Uh, there is no major player. What probably they should do is to cooperate and to make a coalition uh, to uh, challenge Georgian Dream. But again, I don't see any signs of this at the moment. I don't see any attempts of this. There are some small coalitions of former UNM parties like Girchi, uh, Droa, and others. But recent polls show that their rating is extremely low. So this is quite, this doesn't give uh, room for hope either, unfortunately. But let's see, there is still Mm -hmm. some time. Mm -hmm. So talking about political polarization in Georgia, recently the government tried to impeach the president, though this was unsuccessful, kind of pointed to the level of political polarization in the country. How do you think this complicated relationship between the president and Georgia's dream government has affected Georgia? The level of polarization that it is now. I don't think we ever had such. I, I don't know. Of course, the effect is high. And I think also media contributes to that because we have uh, a very pro-government and very, you know, these propaganda channels. And then there are this opposition media, which are also quite popular, 
but still, according to the polls, at least the majority of people receive their information from TV channels. And you kind of see the reflection of this, uh, of their coverage in what people think and how situation it is in the country. Of course, it's bad. There are some attempts from our Western community trying to help to depolarize, but it's now, I, it's a situation, the way it is now, I feel it's very tense, very polarized. Uh, I don't know what will change this. I think it's only going to get worse, at least in the, before the election again. <laughs> I sound very pessimistic, but unfortunately there is not much. The good thing that happened was obviously receiving the Skype date status, and hopefully it will have some kind of a positive effect on the direction that Georgian Dream uh, will take, especially in December, hopefully when we actually receive the status. Yeah, it was, it's on 15 December expected. So maybe they will shift back to aspiring uh, for the EU membership and actually implementing all these requirements that the EU gave us. Because last year they gave us 12 recommendations and barely three was kind of fulfilled, but majority was not. So maybe now when we actually officially have the status, maybe they will go back to implementing this. And the one hope I have is that the fact that they haven't overridden this veto of president on this law on the assembly about this tense that I just mentioned, hopefully it is because they have expectation that we are going to receive the status and maybe they will go back to being more, you know, <laughs> in the middle of you and Russia. I don't know. That's uh, hopefully that's the way they are going to take. But other than that, unfortunately, I don't have much optimism. And on the topic of um, the recommendation for EU candidate status, um, was that something that was like, despite the like polarization, was that something that was perceived positively? Like Absolutely. people that both yeah. support. I think it was much needed also for people to again have hope because of all the things that has been happening in the past. Of course, a lot of people did not expect this. As I mentioned, you know, these recommendations were not fulfilled and many people thought that we would not get it. So it brought hope back and also not receiving it would basically mean just this harsh change towards uh, this pro-Russian policy and even making it even uh, even stronger. So now hopefully this will revert um, reverse a, a little bit. Uh, but uh, in terms of people, it absolutely, it's uh, it's very positive thing, and it made a lot of people happy. A lot of people happy. I was wondering if you could discuss the like main areas of progress, and as as well as the challenges that Georgia's faced in implementing the reforms required to gain candidate status. I don't even know if there was any progress. I go oh, this uh, report that you published uh, when I was reading it. I think the problem with this. The whole candidate status recommendation was that they, I hoped that they would have, that they would be harsh with the wording. So my understanding was that it was given to us in order to earn it in the future because all the things that happen, all this like deterioration of human rights and media state and like state of, you know, like this uh, protest and activism and so on, it was bad and it should improve in order to deserve this candidate status. It's hard to think of anything positive that has happened. I mean, of course, there are some small things that they do on the legislative level, but then the question is how the legislation is enforced. If we think back a little bit before when GD was still very pro-European, like there there was this labor reform, for example, the legislative amendments that they did and so on. But in practice, when we looked at the labor rights, for example, uh, the way employers and investors are treated and the way uh, employees are treated, 
this legislation was not uh, reflected in practice. So this is like maybe they did some kind of reforms on paper, which is obviously it is still progress. So maybe if this not this government, but next government will come, they will actually obey to those laws and implement them. But on uh, high, on this larger scale, it's very hard for me to tell what progress has been achieved since the last year when we were given these recommendations up until now when we got this recommendation to receive a status. Barely anything. Mm -hmm. Only just deteriorating many directions. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.